Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello there, Baha'i Blogcast fans. It is me, Rain Wilson. And I'm super, triple, quadruple excited to have this podcast today because I get to interview my own wife. How about that? Unbelievable. <laughs> my own wife is here in my office participating in the Baha'i Blogcast. Please welcome to the microphone, Holiday Reinhorn. Woo! Woo! Hi, everybody. Hi, Rain. Nice Hi. to see you. Hi, honey. Nice to see you. Thanks for uh, being a part of this. And we've got our third wheel Dr. Catherine Adams is here, fresh from Haiti. Welcome, Catherine. Good morning. Nice to see you here in the USA. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, And uh, we, together, the three of us, founded about mm, three or four years ago, uh, LIDE Haiti, uh, a nonprofit educational organization for adolescent girls in rural Haiti. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to discuss that and how it came to be and what we do and how it might be inspired by the Baha'i writings. And we're going to talk a little bit about how our, our faith and our work with Lide intersect, blah, blah, blah. You, you get the idea. So let's jump right in. Lide, Haiti. How did this come about? Holly, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, you know, around 2009, it, there was sort of a larger thing going on for us in our marriage is that we wanted to be of service in a deeper way to the world. And we were looking at various ways we could do that. At that time, you know, you were doing the office. And so we were approached by many organizations asking, you know, would you be the spokesperson? Would Rain please come here? Would we come visit, etc.? And we became attracted to the Mona Foundation um, and the way that their model of development works. And um, they basically function as a grant-making organization that supports grassroots educational initiatives within the country um, where they're developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, that really appealed to us. And they invited us to come to visit four uh, schools in Haiti, mm-hmm. um, two in the city, two in the rural areas. We're really compelled by that. I had always been very interested in Haiti. Um, I remember when we met, you had a you had a voodoo <laughs> spirit bottle. Yes, covered in beads. Yes. <laughs> so um, we is that, is that where you keep my spirit? Do you keep my spirit in there? That's right. There's a lot in that bottle. I'll tell <laughs> you that. I'll tell you that. Uh, you don't want to open that. Anyway, um, the uh, uh, opportunity was really compelling to us. So we got on a plane and we went down to Haiti, and we immediately fell in love with that country um, in every possible way uh, you can imagine. Uh, There's a couple of things that most affected me as an artist um, and as a writer is the poetry of the country. Mm. Um, I feel like there are places on earth where the art, like art convergence on the planet, you'd say maybe Ireland, where there's this incredible storytelling uh, tradition, and Haiti is one of those. So um, and all the arts in Haiti too. The, yeah, I mean all, all the arts. The the painting and visual arts. Of course, Haiti was the center of the modern art world 
uh, Haitian artists had, you know, they were being shown in the Louvre and at MoMA and um, in the in the 50s and 60s, especially and uh, Haitian music mm -hmm. and and song and and rhythm. Um, it's just an artistic uh, Mecca. Mecca. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had studied a lot of Haitian art in, in art history in college. We spent months on it because of that. And there were nine painting conservatories in Port-au-Prince at one point flourishing. So that was number one. Number two was the incredible spirit of the Haitian people who I find to be <laughs> just one of the most wonderful group of people on earth. Just um, the humor, the love, the radiance. Um, there's a tremendous power in the Haitian spirit of resiliency and um, uh, so much hope, I have to say, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. embodied. So in much the hope. midst of the most dire yeah. poverty. And for those that don't yeah. know, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and one of the poorest in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... We went to visit some schools, and on our way, we, we visited one school that was four hours outside the capital. And as we drove more into the interior of Haiti, out of the city, we started to see more and more that everywhere we looked, adolescent girls were doing all the work. We started noticing them carrying water and, you know, chopping wood and uh, bending over cooking fires and selling things at the marché. And we saw... Taking care of the babies. Taking care of the babies. And... Everywhere we looked, there seemed to be this labor force. And that wasn't just adolescents. It was, they were usually accompanied by young girls, you know, kindergarten age, elementary school age. Um, so we were speaking with the pedagogical director in the car as we drove, and he was telling us about their struggles to build up their curriculum. Um, at that point, they had first, second, and third grade operating, and they were looking to go into a fourth, fifth, and sixth. And I asked him just about art you know, do you do art with the kids? And and he said, well, we don't have time for that. <laughs> we're basically, you know, we're, we're working on literacy and numeracy, but I would love you to have a conversation with the kids today. You know, do it. So as a writing teacher in the States um, and doing writing workshops all over the world, I, I sat down in a circle and I started to just have a conversation about the arts. And um, I just started with hopes and dreams. And I asked this one little girl who was dressed in this very, you know, perfectly white dress, ribbons in her hair, so dressed up to come to school. And this is way, way out in the middle way, of way out. farming country, rural Haiti. Right. Spotless, patent leather shoes and a white dress. And I said, what are your, you know, what do you dream of? And she said, well, I do all the farming for my family. I have 11 brothers and sisters and it's my job to grow the food. I'm in charge of the sweet potatoes. And, you know, if we don't have sweet potatoes, we don't get to eat. But what I really dream of is being a singer. And everyone started to get really excited. <laughs> everyone started to jump around and smile and laugh. And I asked our translator, um, what's going on? And uh, he said, well, we didn't know that she spoke. She's never spoke. We've never heard her talk. Um, and this big light went off in my head, like, oh, because... You know, if you're trying to grow sweet potatoes for 11 people, no one has ever asked you that. And there is a part of your soul that's not being engaged. Mm. And so I spoke to you, my husband, right then. And that's me. <laughs> that's you. And to um, the executive director of Mona Foundation about coming back and doing an oral history project, like a um, mm. Voices of Haiti kind of. 
project. It's like there's this tremendous voice there that needs a listener, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what would that mean for these little girls to be able to be given space to mm-hmm. create? So that was a... And then uh, I'll just jump in and yeah. say uh, two months later was the earthquake, earthquake of 2010. And the hotel that we had stayed at in Port-au-Prince was completely wiped out. Every single person inside of it was killed. But more importantly than that, almost 300,000 people were killed in uh, less than a couple of minutes. Um, complete devastation. And I remember thinking, like, this place is so poor and so... Uh, messed up and um, hurting so much. I couldn't imagine another level of hurt and pain put on the country. And and that's really, I remember, Holly, where we decided, like, we've got to do something. Let's figure out what to do. And then um, then there was a uh, an email that came across uh, your guys' uh, desks calling for artists and, and volunteers to go down to Haiti. Uh, Catherine, why don't you tell us about that? So I first got involved with Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. Uh, Around that time, I had been consulting on the effects of trauma on learning and mostly in the context of South Central L.A. Hmm. And the person who... You were a professor at Moore Park College here in L.A. at the time, yeah. Right. And, And the person who had asked me to do that was right after the earthquake, she had been contacted. Um to see if there were psychologists and people working around the issue of trauma who'd be willing to go down and work with the people. And so I was asked to go and be on a team. And it was a mix of doctors and psychologists. And when we got down there, we realized right away, you can't just send individual experts in to solve the problems. What you have to do is help the people who are on the ground, who are staying after the two-week trip, to be able to continue the work on their own. So we very quickly developed a program of training locals in how to help each other. And one of the aspects that I particularly focused on was how to train teachers to help kids. And um, so that project then led to return trips to Haiti. And uh, within about a year of that, there was a request that was sent to the same woman who brought me down there uh, or suggested I go down there um, for a UN Foundation-funded project that would go down to Haiti and use the arts in the camps with adolescent girls to help with the effects of trauma. So for those who don't know, hundreds of thousands of Haitians had lost their homes and then were living essentially in tent cities in any kind of on sidewalks and in parks and and where we worked. um, Haiti's only existing nine hole golf course and country club was immediately just filled with uh, 40, 50,000 people uh, right after yeah. the earthquake. Yeah. And that was at Sean Penn's charity, uh, JPHRO, which came in right away and uh, provided aid and kind of ran that camp for the UN and for the Haitian government. Right. And uh, as part of my work, I had been also volunteering over there, helping them run psychosocial. And so it all kind of fit together. 
and I was asked to coordinate the project. I also, one of the things in my background was also writing and teaching creative writing. Yeah, you have a lot of interesting kind of degrees in background. You want to <laughs> fill us in real quick on, on how this all kind of dovetailed? Yeah, work in Haiti, so. it totally dovetailed. You know, I so believe in everything falling together for a reason. Um, for any of you out there who feel like you aren't quite sure where your life is headed, trust me, it's headed in the right direction. You just don't know it yet. Um, I started out undergrad in liberal arts with a focus on international relations and creative writing mixed together because I went to Evergreen State College in Hippie Washington, College. Mm -hmm. Hippie College. And then I did a master's in creative writing that also had a minor attached to it in ethnography mm -hmm. um, and oral histories were a big part of that. Uh, then I did a master's in clinical psychology because I felt like I had spent too much time inside my own head and I thought I'd go inside other people's heads. And so I did that. Mm -hmm. When I came out of that, I was working a lot in the foster care system with kids who had been placed in foster care as a result of parents being addicted to drugs. And then that led to an interest in uh, education and how kids learn and the effects of trauma on learning. So I did a doctorate in that. <laughs> and, and so that's why everything kind of was coming together with this project where they wanted to use psychology and writing and the arts to, to help adolescent girls. And having work down there, I could see the effects on the adolescent girls. And having been around the international relief sector, at that point for a while, like every, every Easter break, Christmas, summer vacation, as soon as the last final ended, I was on a plane to Haiti and the night before classes started, that was when I'd come back. And so I'd been down there a lot mm -hmm. and I could see that a lot of relief services were focused on what in Haiti we call the TT moon moon being little kids. Um, so if you were cute in a photograph and under age 12, you were receiving a lot of services. Mm -hmm. You had free schooling, you had uniforms, you had people taking care of you and giving you games and fun activities to do. And the teenage girls were doing the work and, mm -hmm. and walking those kids to school and seeing them go to the fun activities while they went and did the laundry. So the need was huge. And so I, I was excited to do the project and happy about doing the project. And that's when I was introduced to Holiday. So Holiday and I met and really hit it off right away. Um, <laughs> our ideas were really... Uh, In sync. Yeah, mm -hmm. balanced each other really well. So what was that like? We uh, There was a, a quote-unquote community center that was uh, some tree poles stuck in the mud with uh, palm fronds on top of them and pigs and chickens and naked kids running around mm -hmm. uh, on a muddy floor. And um, holiday, we did uh, 10 or 12 days of uh, arts classes there. What, what was that like? Yeah, it was incredible. But I did want to say, I, I really, uh, Catherine and I had such different journeys, but you know, I come from generations of teachers and women who went out into the 
rural areas mm. and worked with the poorest of the poor in Oregon at the lumber camps with the Spanish Basque communities. And I and my grandmother worked with disabled kids in Portland um, at one of the first centers actually for kids with autism in Portland, Oregon. And I always had this kind of thread going through me of the fact that writing saves lives, you know, and the mm. act of writing does. And for me, you know, through graduate school, through all of my journey, that's what writing was for me. And, and so for people who don't know, what's a little micro history of your writing? Mm. Um, so I came to writing through a theater. It's where I met you in an acting class when we were 19. But um, I quickly graduated. I, I had a dual major in women's studies. Um, and uh, but they didn't call it that at the time at the University of Washington. They called women's studies general studies. It was it didn't even have a <laughs> a name. Um, we but but it was a cool department, and we had had a lot of ethnography components in there. We we looked at um, a lot of Native American cultures and all kinds of language and the roots of language, and so it was fascinating. But um, I then uh, moved to New York City and started to write my own theater and I did performance art and, you know, meat lockers and <laughs> crazy places on the Lower East Side and found my way into a uh, writing group that was a very motley crew of all sorts of different artists, very diverse. And um, I was really at a point of crisis artistically, spiritually at that time. Um, I was not a Baha'i and um, really in a place of seeking. And um, a very uh, pivotal person in my life introduced me to my writing process of just, you know, intuitive writing and, and taking writing into any community I went into. And so w this kind of work was, um, you know. And then you went to Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, yes, and yes. Got yes. your mm -hmm. MFA in creative writing and you did right. teaching at University of Wisconsin and UCLA and some other places and University privately as well and, and mm -hmm. in Iowa. So you had a lot of that experience as well. But let's, mm -hmm. and then let's, flash forward here we are yeah, in the okay. uh, in the community center and what was your experience right so here we are we we flew in to the capital um at about dawn and we we're driving through um a post-earthquake apocalyptic city yeah um filled with rubble mm -hmm. and people that were mm -hmm. literally still covered with dust you know mm -hmm. almost it, it was you know just people struggling to live i had never seen anything like that i grew up overseas so i've seen a lot of different iterations of extreme poverty, but I had never seen anything like that. And certainly after an earthquake like that. So we stayed in little tents and slept on mattresses outside in a yard. And it was during the rainy season. So it would rain precipitously all night and the sun would shine all day. Mm -hmm. And going into the camp was a security challenge in and of itself. There were 75,000 people living in this camp and, um, what I should say, too, is it was a really mixed group in that camp. So if you can imagine, you know, calculus professors, police officers, accountants. Who had also lost their who homes. Who had also lost their homes. Everyone was there. You know, it was a microcosm of everyone. And um, a, a group of map makers who had been in Kabul, all sorts of relief workers. And we were all kind of crashing in these tents. And, we, and they took us through the camp. And as we walked... Um, we were told that there were girls that knew we were coming. You know, the, the workshop was a two-week workshop, and it was for girls aged, I think, 12 to 18 mm -hmm. was the, the group. Mm -hmm. But 
women on both sides of that, you know, younger girls and right. older women seeing us walking into the camp immediately started to come out and follow us. And we just said, come on, come on. So by the time we got to this little 20 by 20 camp uh, tent, we had, I don't know, 45 women or so. And many were dressed in their absolute best. You know, here they were in taffeta dresses. And they had built us these rudimentary benches, you know, to sit on. And this was the first really interesting thing because none of the women wanted to sit on the benches. They were in their best dresses. You know what I mean? So take it from there. Oh, wasn't that interesting? So they, yeah, they don't want to sit on the benches because they're dirty. And everyone is is clean and in their best clothes. And we would always be so amazed because here we'd be in our khakis and boots and, you know, and these girls would be in their dress shoes. They'd come with with either barefoot and then wash their feet before coming into the tent Mm -hmm. Uh, or they would put like baggies bags over their over their feet in order to come. And so they'd clean off all the benches before we sat. And I remember once I, I went to sit down and, and the girls looked at me like horrified. Yeah. Like, don't sit, Madam Catherine, don't sit, <laughs> you know, because they hadn't cleaned the bench yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was taught there? So we taught uh, creative writing, mm-hmm. uh, theater, uh, which is in itself kind of a funny story, um, and art. And, and then we did a lot of discussions around um, the virtues mm-hmm. um, and some of the key aspects of life, compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also did photography. And what was beautiful about these things is the, a lot of the girls did not have literacy. They couldn't read and write or they had a literacy level that was far, far behind their age and their maturity mm-hmm. and their experience. And so when when we would write, those who couldn't write their own words would have what we call the scribe. And so someone would assist them in writing down their words, which also helped them learn their words. But more importantly, it made them feel like everybody else. They felt equal to everyone else and they could tell their story. Mm-hmm. And that is so freeing. For girls who, like Holiday mentioned earlier, they're not asked. Girls are, in fact, not only not asked, they are trained in Haiti to be silent. They are told in schools, don't talk, don't answer. Boys are jumping out of their seat with the answers. Mm -hmm. Girls are told, be quiet, because that's what a girl does. We were talking with the girls one day and talking about questions you don't ask. And I said, I have a question for you. Why is it that when I'm coming to Lide, I always see boys playing basketball mm-hmm. or soccer? Mm-hmm. Um, and even if, I, even if it's, it's a dirty old tennis ball that they totally, use ball. Yeah. totally, or a can, you know, yeah. kick the can. Um, but I never see girls playing. Not just not playing basketball. I never see girls playing. Period. Period. Yeah. You don't even see the girls on the streets in the afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Not even like standing on the corner gossiping. And at first they were like, well, girls don't play basketball because girls don't play basketball. And I said, well, there's this thing called the WNBA. And yeah, they, you know, girls play basketball. Yeah. And um, 
And and one of the girls said, no, that's not it. Girls don't play because girls are too busy working. Mm-hmm. And she said, we go home after school and then we do the work. We do the laundry. We cook the food. In one of our locations in Tertanag, I asked the girls, how many of you cook for your family? And this is a group of girls ages 12 to 18, roughly. And every single one of them raised their hands. And so then we started asking, how many kids do you cook for? How many people do you cook for? They were cooking for 7 to 14 people. And that's their daily work. Um, So a lot falls on the women. And and yet they do not get treated like this is work. If you ask a woman, mm-hmm. do you have what do you do for a job? She'll say nothing. Yet she might be the one in the family who's selling things in the marché, which is the open air market, who's then coming home and you know, doing the planting in the farm, doing the cooking, doing the laundry. It's the six-year-old girl that gets sent to do the water, and she continues to carry the water until she is married and in another household and has another six-year-old girl who can go get the water. So the girls do not have the same life as guys Mm. in Haiti. Mm. And it's so much so that the men don't even see it. They don't even see it. Yet if you talk to a woman in Haiti... She knows exactly why we work with girls. There's no question in her mind why we work with girls. So I want to just turn to the Baha'i writings a little bit. Um, we found this great quote this morning as we were preparing for this podcast. And um, a lot of people ask, like, why do you work with girls? This is giving a little background. And certainly it's uh, uh, we're told in the Baha'i faith that if a family has uh, the capacity to only educate uh, either a boy or a girl to educate the girl, and that was that was more important. Um, this has since been backed up. This was you know this was written about 150 years ago. It has been since backed up by Brookings Institute, United Nations, Gates Foundation, you name it. That the number one way to reduce poverty in the world is to educate a girl, especially an adolescent girl. Girls spread education. They teach their children. They teach their cousins and their aunts and their and their friends. So you're educating a girl, you're really educating um, a village. That's a super important part of the Baha'i faith. And of course, education, universal education is uh, one of the highest prized thing in, in the faith at all. But we found this incredibly hard hitting quote from Abdul Baha this morning. Um, and this really applies to Haiti, I think. It says, in brief, the assumption of superiority by man will continue to be depressing to the ambition of woman as if her attainment to equality was creationally impossible. Women's aspiration towards advancement will be checked by it, this assumption of superiority by man, and she will gradually become hopeless. On the contrary, we must declare that her capacity is equal, even greater than man's. This will inspire her with hope and ambition and her susceptibilities for advancement will continually increase. She must not be told and taught that she is weaker and inferior in capacity and qualification. If a pupil is told that his intelligence is less than his fellow pupils, it is a very great drawback and handicap to his progress. 
He must be encouraged to advance by the statement, you are most capable, and if you in will, and if you endeavor, you will attain the highest degree. Such a profound quote on so many levels, but it reminds me of all of those psychological studies that were done that showed that if you simply tell kids they're yeah. not as smart or they're not going to do as well as a test or whatever, and then right. and other and another group you tell them that they're really smart and that they're going to do well on a test, That's that right. it really affects the outcome of that test. And yet you have this in so much of the world, all of the world, developing and and uh, less developed, you know, and developed nations. I hate using that word, but you know what I mean. Um, but uh, we talk about the. Um, the two wings of the bird with, with right. man and woman. And I think what we're doing in Lee Day is we have a country where one wing is very, very weak. And how I view mm -hmm. it is we're strengthening that wing. And yeah. it's so interesting because Baha'is, um, we certainly don't exclude boys, um, but a lot of Baha'is will be like, well, what are you doing without the boys? It's two wings of the bird. You need to work with the boys too. And it's like, well, if someone else wants to come to Haiti and start a nonprofit working with boys right. to respect women, they can do that. That's not really what we do. Um, we are strengthening that very weak wing. But yeah. before we go further on that, I want to just go, go way back now to this. There's that wonderful story about the girl and the hope mm -hmm. that happened in that first workshop that we did. Holly, could you, can you fill us in? Sure. You know, um, what was really profound in that initial workshop the level of trauma was extreme. Um, yeah, you had girls that they they just they were limited so much by their own trauma. Right, right, and this was upon layers of other trauma. So even if you'd ask them to close their eyes when meditating, they had a really hard time to just right. do a one two minute meditation with their eyes closed. I did a you know that theater exercise of the mirror where two people are looking eye to eye doing a mirror and they couldn't look in each other's eyes. Right. Um, it was too vulnerable. It was too dangerous. It was too threatening. Um, it's a, it's almost a revolutionary act to stand in a circle with holding your hands in Haiti. Yes. Because in the colonial education system, you're sitting in rows. Yeah. You're not looking at each other. And that was a huge, it was to get girls to sit in a circle and hold hands because I wanted them to connect with the act of writing, like we were creating this safe space and a circle where we would work. And that was really, really difficult. One girl wept to do that when her hand was held, you know, just that act. Another was that it was impossible to close their eyes, to meditate and to feel mm -hmm. safe enough um, mm -hmm. and to slow down and, and not mm -hmm. be in the state of hypervigilance and, you know, fight and flight. Right. So that was a major part of it too. And that created another layer you know, to be able to do that. And then we did, you know, sp safe space meditation and what that meant to talk and listen. And, you know, girls were saying they hadn't had that happen before. You know, they didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. And um, so we had this one very, um, she was a very uh, immediately a leader, you know, one of someone who immediately kind of spoke up. And she, on the end of the second day said, I, I know, I know why you're, here, I understand what's going on. You're reminding us how important we are. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I understand that now. And she said, you know, everyone comes to Haiti. It's not just for the, earth, the, the earthquake. Everyone comes to Haiti and they bring us things and they bring us, you know, rice and food and they bring us these programs and, and shoes and what they think is really useful to us. But it does us no good if we don't have hope. This process is about that. 
that's what this is. That's what's You're reminding us of our power, you know, mm. like, yeah, yes, yes. And that's the thing is we're not bringing something. Right. We are creating the space around which something that exists, something precious, something noble, something, something can grow. Mm. And like Catherine said, in Haiti, women understand that immediately. Yeah. Because, um, in Haiti, communal life, what they call the combite, the gathering, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. is is very real to them, but it's run by men mm -hmm. and it's generally for men. Mm -hmm. And when most NGOs come to Haiti, um, they hire men and the men are speaking to men. So it's a male dominated, you know, the aid system in itself is very male dominated. So working at this level in the village immediately you know the community asked us for programs we're invited there it's not like we chose yeah. you know where we would go Catherine, maybe you can talk a little bit about that yeah and you know also relating back to the idea of hope and and something that relates to a baha'i principle is this idea of accompaniment that that everyone has that gem inside of them mm -hmm. and if you go in and you just give stuff or provide services on your own, what you're doing is you're saying, you don't have this capacity inside of mm. you. And so our approach down there is to train locals. So we train locals to run these programs. We did it the first time in the camp, but now our job is to pass that on to others. And so, for example, we began working in the south of Haiti, again, in a rural kind of overlooked area after the hurricane. And the hurricane, much like the earthquake, it wasn't the trauma, as devastating as it was. It wasn't the trauma. Mm. What it was, was something that just exposed the trauma that's there mm. and the difficulties that are there, the poverty is the everyday challenge. Mm. The lack of education is the everyday challenge. When we went into this community in the South, it's a community that in Creole they call Okoto. And of all the rural communities that we've been in, this is one of the least educated in terms of the quality of education. Mm. There's kids who are in school. We have so many kids who are enrolled in school and they do not pass a basic literacy exam in their own language. But going back to the accompaniment and the hope, in training the locals down there, what we did was we we found, we identified through a partner organization, Francoze, that works with Marchand and farmer women. Um, we asked them to find us young women, ages 18 to like 25, who themselves were displaced from their plans and their dreams by this hurricane. And we were going to train them to run the programs. And among those women was a young girl. She's 21. She's in the ninth grade. Mm. Um, and she goes by the name Suze um, because she doesn't like her name. And Suze's mom lives in the same community, but abandoned her to cousins to be a Restavec, which means to stay with and to be a servant. Domestic servitude. Domestic servitude. Almost like slavery. Yeah. 
when she was a little girl, because there were too many kids in the house. She couldn't afford to have one more. And so Suze sees her mother on the streets, but can't go to her mother Mm. and has no one in her life, really. Mm. And she was so shocked when she was asked to be among our training because she's not the class that gets to go to these kind of things. She's not the one that goes to, you know, the church group activities or gets picked to go on the school field trip kind of thing. Um, You know, Seuss sweeps the porch and does the laundry and cooks the food and, and takes care of all the other kids. And we were talking in a teacher meeting and and I asked them, what's changed for you since the hurricane? What's changed for you? And I was kind of expecting stories of, of the challenges they were facing. And Sue started to cry. And she said, I have hope now. Hmm. And that was because she came to the training and was now a part of Lee Day. Hmm. And, and she's Madame Sue's. She's not Sue's. She's Madame Sue's. Hmm. And, and the kids... In Koto, when they think of Lide, they don't think of me, you know, the executive director who comes in with the, you know, four-wheel drive truck because <laughs> it's the only way to access the area. Um, no, they think of Sue's and they think of the local teachers. Mm-hmm. Those teachers are Lide. Mm-hmm. They did. I'm not. Right. They are, and that's what we're there to do, and that's accompaniment. Right. And I think that's the major thing that did come out of this. You know, the narrative of Lee Day is a lot about we came in for the earthquake, but the earthquake revealed what was already there. And in fact, the girls said it's not the earthquake that that disrupted our dreams. Our dreams were already disrupted. This is a very inconvenient interruption. So it's peeling back, you know, layers of trauma because, you know, in psychology, they say it takes five years to heal from a major trauma. Well, the superstorms and earthquakes come to Haiti because of its climate and its location, geog- you know, geography, every five years. Every five years, there is a major storm, and it's somewhere in the country. It moves around. And, you know, the thing about Matthew is there's no infrastructure down there. You know, right. Port-au-Prince at least has a bit. So we're getting at something, at you know, a root system. That's right. Yeah. So and I it- like the, um, you talked about accompaniment, and you also talked about this, um, it's a, both a Baha'i ideal and idea and a kind of nonprofit idea and ideal, and that mm-hmm. is building capacity and raising capacity. So uh, Lide is not some white folks from L.A. coming in and running programs. This is about building capacity for Haitians to uh, continue their education. So uh, just going back in the history, um, we... Um, after that great experience we had in the camp, we, we knew we were onto something and we knew that we wanted to work with adolescent girls. We saw how powerful the arts were. Uh, I saw these really frail, shy girls come into this workshop that could barely speak. You could barely hear what they would say. Um, I remember early on, we did some exercise where we asked girls like what their favorite color was. And I think they all had the same answer. They all kind of, shyly said blue or something like that and um uh i i kind of had this realization we all had this realization like wow 
people have never asked them what their favorite color was before. Right. No one had even cared enough to ask. And in America, it's just constant. It's like, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite kind of vanilla? Right. Do you what's... like Madagascar vanilla or right. Swiss vanilla? What's your, how do you feel about this? Like kids are so like yeah. these precious, maybe overly modelly coddled in some ways, but these, what they think and what they feel and how they express is super important. But to Haitians, no, and especially to, to girls in Haiti. So, uh, but by the end of the workshop, they had confidence. They were reading their poems. They were playing theater games. They were showing off their photographs to their families. They, the, the, the boys were invited in to be a part of it and were just flabbergasted by the kind of the power and the voice we had just achieved in a couple of weeks workshops. So we knew we were onto something and, you know, long story short, Catherine traveled all around Haiti looking mm -hmm. for like-minded organizations. Uh, we really researched where to go. We decided we were not going to go anywhere near Port-au-Prince because that's where all the aid goes is to the capital city. And we wanted to be out in the rural regions and support education out there. And we knew we wanted to be, and most importantly, we wanted to be invited to come to a community. We were never going to go to a community and start a program. That's right. We needed to be invited by an existing Haitian organization or school or educational initiative to come be a part of what they were doing. So that way we were, the community was invested in us. We were invested in the community. We were working hand in hand with other Haitian right. organizations. And, you know, I remember we, we wanted to go in the South by Jacques Mel because it's so beautiful down there and there's beautiful beaches <laughs> and, and, um, and, but instead the first place we were invited was through care to a school in the North in St. John in, in Gonaive. And we were invited to Gonaive, which is kind of a wasteland in Haiti. It's, um, yeah. it's very dry, um, uh, in the North and, uh, not, yeah. not very physically beautiful. And that's kind of where our programs have spread. I mean, yeah. Um, and that was about three and a half, four years ago that we started doing that. And right now, Lide is in uh, 12 different locations, serving almost 600 girls at this point. Uh, but you see how great the need is. And I want to just jump into to education because this is the other important Baha'i aspect of this is the importance of education. Abdul Baha says the primary, the most urgent requirement is the promotion of education. So it's the primary, most urgent requirement. It is inconceivable that any nation should achieve prosperity and success unless this paramount, this fundamental concern is carried forward. And the principal reason for the decline and fall of peoples is ignorance. And again, we're, Abu Baha said this 150 years ago, and now we're realizing, and the United Nations has said, that the number one way to reduce poverty is mm -hmm. to educate girls, women and girls. And there's, it's just, it's sociological and scientifically mm -hmm. proven that's the best way to reduce poverty. And we're talking about the poorest nation on earth and the best way to reduce poverty in the poorest nation on earth is to educate girls because you guys can address this too. But when we started doing our arts program, immediately the local population said, this is great. We love it. We want to be a part of it, but we also need literacy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we could see that clearly among the participants in it that there was a literacy gap. And some of the methods we were using were having really amazing effects on improving literacy, but we needed it to be more systematic. And the other issue is when you're in a country where, and in fact now they're saying 89% of the schools in Haiti are private, mm. only 11% mm. you know, are public, 
And even the public schools, you have to buy your own uniform, buy your own books, pay exam fees. If you don't pay the exam fees, you don't get to take the exam. If you don't take the exam, you don't pass the grade that you just spent a year paying tuition for. So nothing is free. And kids get behind. And they fall through the cracks as well, even those who go to school. So you could be in a classroom, but you're in there with 60 to 90 other kids. And of course, it's easy for them to not to know that you can't read or not know that you can't read. Um, and so as soon as we began in the rural areas, there was a need for us to create something that was more systematic for addressing the academic and literacy gap. And that's when we partnered with Foncose uh, for curriculum that had been developed by a woman named Laurence Camille, who coincidentally, after all of this, she turned out to be Baha'i. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, go figure. Um, and she had written literacy education curriculum that met the needs of adult women. And when you're working with a 16-year-old who cannot read and you hand her a book that's meant for a six-year-old, it's degrading. It's dehumanizing. And so many of these girls have worked so hard to cover up the fact that they can't read because it's a big part of shame. Uh, you know, you're a different class if you can't read. So we started working on basic literacy. We used that curriculum, those books in our programs and partnered with some farmers alliances as well in doing that and training our staff to teach that curriculum. And that led to also doing numeracy. Uh, small business skills as part of our program, creating centers for learning, Saint Paul Apprentissage, where girls come and get support in academic subjects. Another complicated thing about Haiti that also creates a separation of class is French versus Creole. So Creole is the language that everyone speaks. It's a language that their families speak out in the countryside. French is the language that they're going to take a school exam in. French is the language that their textbooks are going to be written in. But they may not even have teachers who can speak French clearly, properly, fully. So we also offer tutoring in French to help them with that and to help fill that gap. Because without that basic education, they can't even go to some of the lowest technical schools. Mm. Um, you get turned away from the cooking schools unless you have a sixth grade education. And when we tried to put someone with a third grade education who was 18 into a cooking school, sadly, it wasn't successful for her. She needed more literacy. She couldn't. She even came to us and said, you know, I can't read the cookbooks. Mm. I can't read those simple basic recipes that I'm being asked to read in order to learn this vocational skill. Um, so it all goes hand in hand, yet no organization can do everything. And that's, that's a big part of why we try and partner with like-minded right. organizations right. that also are grassroots mm -hmm. and understand the context of Haiti. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and can fill in some of those spaces for us that we can't do, you know, we're not, we're not going to be able to run a vocational school, but we know people who do, right. we, you know, we know people work with groups now that have artisan programs mm -hmm. that help train people to do artisan work that becomes a livelihood. And we're, we're beginning to apprentice people to 
to being facilitators in Lead Day. So some of our girls who started out as 18-year-olds in the program are now teaching in the program. Which is very much like the uh, Ruhi books or the Junior Spiritual Empowerment Program where yeah. the, the, the older kids that have gone through the series of books then right. teach the younger kids. So you right. keep it... Um, you keep it in the community, and there's something really special about a 13-year-old learning from an 18-year-old. You know? Absolutely. It's, and then that 18-year-old feels a, 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 a parentship to that kid and helps build community as right. well. Mm -hmm. Another um, great uh, opportunity that we have here is that we um, do a camp at our, yeah. at our house in... Uh, naive and one thing to know about Haiti too is girls often will not have their sphere of influence is maybe 10 minutes from their house at the most and they will never get to go outside um you know in the evening or you know so it's it's very very limited and they know very little about the communities nearby so um that this gives them the opportunity like in the junior youth programs to all come together from very different backgrounds and get to know each other in a context of safety, you know? Um, the other is that uh, the issue of food, um, because we're working in, you know, this is a red zone for malnutrition. Um, girls usually eat last. You know, this is a very common thing that they will eat the leftovers, even though they're cooking for everyone, they will be the last to eat. And uh, they'll have one meal every day. Yeah. Or maybe in every 36 hours. Yeah. Um, there was a time when, uh, coincidentally, it happened when Rain was out visiting. And we were out in a community called Terdeneg, which is definitely in the red zone of hunger and malnutrition in Haiti. And, and I think it's interesting to mention that Terdeneg was a place filled with the descendants of escaped slaves from before yeah. the Haitian Revolution of 1804. So... These are escaped slaves living in the mountains that escaped the sugarcane fields from the French. And it's so desolate that the French army didn't even want to chase them up into those kind of no. sandy, salt-ridden, cactus-filled hills. Right. Uh, and Terre d'Aneg is land of the blacks. And right. Uh, Which yeah. they say with pride because mm -hmm. of that history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but because of that isolation, the, the hills became clear-cut for uh, charbon, for charcoal, um, and that's how they do the cooking, uh, which then limits what they can grow, which makes it a place where hunger is rampant. And I was, we were work, all working with the kids, and, and I was sitting down doing some writing work with some of the girls, and Rain was working with theater, and I hear this little voice come up next to me, and I hear this, Madam Catherine. And the next thing I know, there's a child on my lap. And one of our girls had fainted. And I noticed she was going into a cold sweat. She was uh, suffering from heat stroke and from hunger. When she woke up, we asked her, when was the last time you ate? And it had been 48 hours since she had had a meal. And she probably weighed about 65 pounds. Oh, she was tiny skinny as a, thing. as a rail. Tiny little thing. No, no, like body fat to kind of yeah. keep going. Yeah. And we, so we, because we, we had seen a lot of kids who were hungry, we had already started a process of meals in the program. Um, unfortunately, the meal was still being cooked when she 
passed out. She couldn't even make it to 11 o'clock when the meal was going to be served. Uh, you know, so some of our programs, we do a cycle now where they eat before the program begins because they can't make it through the day. Um, and sometimes they eat twice yeah. because they can't make it through. And and even that, though, we're trying to support women and locals in that aspect. So we work with local farmers and the women among the farmers, right. and we pay them to do the cooking. They buy local ingredients. We encourage them to keep meals well-rounded. It's very typical just to serve you know, rice and beans, mm-hmm. white rice and beans. And we try and stick with grains that are, are local, more nutritious, um, you know, not the imported cheap mm-hmm. stuff. I, I think it bears saying that a lot of the locations that we work at in the north, we were, um, were thankful to the smallholders, farmers for hooking us up with those locations and these chefs and uh, our co- points of contact. Yeah. Uh, and that's an organization uh, that was founded by a Baha'i, Hugh Locke, who's done a ton of work in Haiti. And um, they support uh, farming, grassroots farming initiatives and uh, combites uh, in, in rural Haiti. Um, and uh, it's been a great synergy of us kind of helping to educate the girls that are uh, on these farming collectives. Yeah. And, and I think because of the, the dedication to keeping it going, to being there, you know, not just walking in, doing something fun and leaving, uh, has helped to make even stronger a sense of community that was already there. Um, stronger for the girls in that girls get very isolated and separated from one another in Haiti. And so within those places... They form a community and a bond among each other. And that rubs off on the community. Uh, in in Bay and A, where the Smallholders Farmers Alliance had asked us to come work. And when I say that, I don't mean Hugh Lockett asked us to come work. I mean the farmers asked us to come work with mm-hmm. their girls. And they would see us out in the sun because there wasn't enough room under this little shelter hut for all of us to do all the activities and we break into groups. And one day we came back to Bayonet and they had built us a shelter with woven palm frond as a roof and sticks in the ground, poles to hold it up. But it was more beautiful than any shrine I could have ever walked into Mm -hmm. because they had made it for us. And more importantly, they had made it for their girls. Right. They had made it for their girls. And I knew that that sense of community and that sense of unity had shifted and become strongest. When one day I was I was working in the South and I got a message from our uh, coordinator in the Artibani in a, a community called Mapu. And she said, none of the girls are here today, Catherine. What do we do? And I'm getting this message, and I'm like, well, why aren't they there? And she said, well, one of the girls' mother died, and so they all went to the funeral to be with her. And I went, I'm so happy. <laughs> I had never been so happy to have our, our program canceled. Um, because I said to her, this is what we've been trying to achieve. They care about each other. They all went there to be with her. All of the girls. 
not just her best friends right, or the people that lived in her little clique and community, but all the girls from our program. And that would not have normally happened. No. And so we ended up sending the food that we normally serve to the girls to the funeral. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, yeah, so it was a really neat thing. The interesting thing about, uh, I know Rain and Holiday, you, you arrived from a place of wanting to bring your faith into action. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was very different. Um, when I began this work, as Rain and Holiday know, I was not Baha'i. You know, I was just doing what felt right. I was concerned about justice in this world and the lack of equality for men and women mm-hmm. and worried about the lack of compassion that I saw, you know, and just the willingness to sit down and listen to somebody's story and and to believe that that every story mattered. And over time, as I was doing this, what I kept seeing was a lot of the things that I already believed in mm-hmm. were present in the faith, in the Baha'i faith and in, in the writings. So you were a friend of the it. faith. You knew yeah. some Baha'is in, in Malibu where you lived and uh, yeah. been to firesides and right. even done Ruhi classes before right. you went to Haiti. Oh, yeah, because you know me. I'm the academic. Uh-huh. So you have to be a good student. I had to complete all the Ruhi classes, <laughs> you know. And um, So what changed that in your leading, you're tiptoeing down that path, but what yeah. changed that there's an act of faith, of declaring your faith in Baha'u'llah and committing one's heart to... Um, to the belief in a, in a certain religion. What happened from the academic Catherine who did all the rooms right. and then was concerned with compassion and social justice and working right. down in Haiti that right. led you to actually declare your faith in Baha'u'llah? A um, couple things happened. You know, one I think was over time, I, I used to wonder a lot about why am I so drawn back to this place, back to Haiti and other places where it's equally devastated. Um, You know, but especially in Haiti, what I loved about Haiti and what kept drawing me back was in the greatest tragedy, you would see hope. In the greatest sorrow, you would find love. In the most polluted, devastated, horrible-looking rubble and or area, you found beauty. And in relation to my my sense of faith, maybe this was the academic side of me, but I kept wanting to know everything for sure. I kept wanting certainty. I kept wanting uh, some proof, some, some analytical or mathematical proof that would say, yes, see, this is true. It's not just your heart. It's not just nice. It's not just an agreement with what you believe. It's real. It's, it's solid, you know? And suddenly what hit me was, but that's not what faith is. Faith isn't about knowing for sure. Faith is about trusting and being willing not to know and being willing to step forward anyway. You know, I'm, I, I'm always saying to the, to the girls and to our staff, courage is not the absence of fear. 
Courage is taking a step even though you are afraid because you know you need to. And it so hit me that I needed to as an as an act of courage. Absolutely. Hmm. Because I still feel no less certain, you know, I still feel so incredibly flawed, you know, and I kept thinking, oh, maybe you have to be perfect before you can be Baha'i or you have to know everything before you can be Baha'i. You have to finish all the Rui classes, read all the books, you know, and it's like, no, you have to just find it in your heart to say, I'm going to continue to learn. And and so that's kind of the point I reached, and that was about a year ago. So there's a number of other aspects of the program. Uh, Holiday, do you want to uh, fill us in and some other things that Lide is doing? Sure. So Catherine, you know, touched on it a little bit, but sort of the central tentpole of the organization is virtues-based education. So, um, you know, right now we're working, gosh, I think there's 50 Haitian staff, but the the core teachers meet every month and they're actually, since they're working with the girls each day, they really have a sense of what virtues are needed. And each, each lesson is based on a virtue. So all of the activities kind of circle back to this theme, you know, um, so that everywhere, uh, in what the girls are doing, there is this general concept. And so we discuss how one uses that concept and in all the varying ways, you know. Like how can you incorporate compassion through a theater game, through a photography exercise, through creative writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then how would you take that out? How would you bridge it into the community? Mm -hmm. You know, where do you see compassion happening or where do you not see compassion happening? Where could you be more compassionate yourself? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, so that is continually going. And I think if, that's how we come upon, as we were talking about this issue of accompaniment, that's how we come upon what is needed, you know? So the community will say, this is what we need, you know? So obviously we talk about our, our literacy component and our food component and the numeracy component. Um, basic scholarships and support for girls through the educational system, which is very different depending on which girl and which age and which grade level and which school is viable you know, and where she is, there is a great deal of filling the gap, as Catherine said. So um, our job is also to go and research what schools are good, work with them, and provide academic tutoring and support, which the young apprentices become really vital mm. um, to that to that end. We have our, our, as I mentioned, our big house, our base camp, where we have camp. We also have a learning center there where we have these wonderful donated computers, mm-hmm. um, you know, in Haiti, sometimes they're assigned. Um, they are often assigned assignments that are typed that need to be typed on a computer, but no one has a computer. No one has electricity mm. and you have to pay to go to a quote computer center. So having access to these computers is very important. Having access to textbooks, you know, mm-hmm. um, so we have our home learning center and then we have our mobile learning centers that are in each community and that are coordinated by our youth coordinators and you know village leaders so that the learning itself is embedded in the community. Um, so that is very important. Then we also have our um, mobile, well, this is very exciting. Um, and this involves a story um, of what our now deputy director who was walking through downtown Gonaive and came upon this beautiful building one day. 
It was a, obviously had been built by an NGO. So she went inside to inquire, and behind the desk was this very beautiful young woman in her mid-20s, uh, the receptionist. And uh, Surette, our deputy director, said, what is this building? And she said, well, it was built um, by some Scandinavian funding for the Ministry uh, for Handicapped Children. And But we, we don't have any programs, but this is our building. And, and she said, well, we have programs. <laughs> and Surette told her a little bit about Lide, and she became very excited, and she stood up to go uh, call on the telephone, and she had a prosthetic made from kindling and barbed wire. Her leg. Her leg was made from found objects. And we, uh, Surette said immediately, children with disabilities, what is, what is the reality for children with disabilities in this community, which opened up a whole other realm of uh of what we're doing now um because many kids in haiti if they're um if they have a disability almost never leave the house there's no way nowhere for them to go the tap taps and public uh transportation is not handicapped accessible so um we have started to work at a school for the deaf and out of this beautiful building mm-hmm. right Catherine? <laughs> yeah and um and took one of our Lide trucks and have now transformed it into what we think is the first handicap accessible tap tap in, in Haiti. Yeah. Right. For those who don't know, tap taps are the kind yeah. of, um, they're converted trucks, like a Toyota truck with a, an awning on the back. And they're used kind of as a taxi and they're called tap taps because you, you tap tap when you want to get on and you tap tap when you yeah. want to get off. Yeah. And the lovely thing is it's, it, you know, created this whole new compassion and awareness around mm-hmm. children with disabilities in that community. Right. Our drivers have to go into the home, carry the child who has no wheelchair or no crutches into the vehicle in order to bring them to the program. And for some of these kids, this is the only thing they get out of the house to do. One of one of the girls in the BISF program, because we do have a few boys in that program, mainly because they are as marginalized as as girls when when you have a disability. Mm. Um, and and one of the girls was writing they were writing about wishes. And she said, I wish I could walk so that I could go to school like other kids and so that I could help my mother carry the water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's hard. She's one of the little ones that has to be carried. And a lot of these kids have disabilities that could have been prevented. They were caused by early childhood diseases or diseases that their mothers caught while they were pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so they have things like the effects of polio or uh, cerebral palsy, um, or even infections that spread and, that could have been caught early. Exactly. And that's why there's so many kids who are deaf in not just Haiti, but all developing countries have a high number of kids who are deaf due to simple ear infections oh, having yeah. gone untreated. And this is something that's very documented in mm. the relief community. And we see it in Ghanaive, you know. Um, so, so these are other aspects of the program that, 
that are really close to our heart. And even though they may seem small, when you see a girl opening up a laptop in a rural community <laughs> in the middle of nowhere where they can't even charge their phones, mm. it's an amazing thing. Mm. They, they, In fact, when we first brought the computers out to Bayonet, they didn't know how to open the laptops. Mm. We had that, that was step one Lesson in the one. teaching assignment was yes. how to open the laptop. Yeah. So, so I just want to uh, uh, move us towards uh, wrapping this up. And um, I, I want to say, you know, people ask what's next for Lee Day. And, um, um, you know, a scholarship program is something that we re recently started this last year to uh, uh, place girls in schools and give them scholarships. And they have a, a yeah. rigorous application process for yeah. that. So we want to do more scholarships, more school placement more placement into vocational schools, more looking at getting girls involved in, in, in getting work. Um, and, you know, we reach almost 600 girls right now, but, you know, there's 6 million um, women and right. girls in, in all of Haiti. And uh, that's just such a drop in the bucket. I, I'd love to, you know, spread this out and, and reach 6,000, but even that's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've been discussing for a while is starting a YouTube channel exactly. of yes. yeah. um, videos by uh, our girls, four other Haitian girls in Creole that deal with virtues and community and, um, um, you know, even practical ideas, you know, as they mm -hmm. call it in the United States, life hacks, you know, mm -hmm. Haitian life hacks. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, so that's, and that would be one way to reach a much larger audience. I'd love to try and get something like that going this next year. But how can people get involved with Lee Day Haiti? Obviously, they can go to LeeDayHaiti.org, L-I-D-E, Haiti.org, um, and check out what's there. But what are some other ways? And we certainly take donations, but... Um, well, as you like to say, rain suitcases of cash. Suitcases of cash. <laughs> <laughs> but... <We'll accept. laughs> Um, we have here in the States, um, we've just developed, um, we're, we're very excited about it, a youth ambassadors program. Yeah. And um, we have a an application to become a youth ambassador, and that can take a number of different forms. What we really need are um, social media uh, friends out there who can spread the word, who can keep us, um, you know, tell their friends about us, talk mm -hmm. about the issues women face throughout the world, you know, what this kind of empowerment looks like, how little goes a long way. Um, you know, that was another aspect of this is in, in, um, is how very, very small amount of money can take a girl through a year, you know, $150 can support a girl for a year academically. So, you know, putting together social activism to raise some money, um, mm -hmm. is wonderful, mm -hmm. but also, um, doing the activities in their own communities, you know, um, getting together with girls, their age and creating these, these types of, um, groups here in the States, which are needed, very right. needed. Um, right. looking what, looking at what can be done in their own communities and creating a bridge, you know, girls here supporting girls there mm -hmm. and communicating and sharing. So, mm -hmm. We also take master teachers down for yeah. the day. So mm -hmm. master teachers who have years of experience teaching, um, you know, photography, creative writing, um, um, you know, theater, theater, 
um, and maybe other aspects um, that would be relevant. Um, yes, well, we're looking for um, some basic accounting. We've talked about that. Um, some computer file management and computer care. I think in, uh, for, in terms of people we're looking for from the U.S., um, we also had a request come from our participants mm -hmm. for more help with English. Mm -hmm. And and so we are accepting uh, one person, ideally a university graduate or close to graduate student, um, who wants to teach ESL for a month in the summer. In terms of, uh, we often get asked about material donations. Um, Clothing, we, we don't take because it becomes difficult in terms of distribution, and there's a lot down there. Um, but computers, we do accept, for mm -hmm. sure. As you heard us talking about the laptops, we would like to have, we do not have a mobile uh, computer library for the program in the South. Uh, where it was hit by the hurricane. Yeah. And so um, I, I have a personal goal of hoping to get about 12 laptops that are still functioning, donated, mm -hmm. uh, used laptops. These don't have to be new, um, donated to the program. So that's another way that people could help. Wonderful. And cameras. iPads. We do say iPads. iPads. Okay. <laughs> now we're getting pretty Xboxes. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, no, no, no. The no. new Nintendo Switch would be good. <laughs> with the new Zelda game. Um, uh, well, thank you. This has been just a joy talking with you two. Uh, who, you know, we've worked so intimately together over these many years, but I'm really happy to share the work that uh, we do with the Baha'i blog audience and uh, the, the podcast audience and and especially the how inspired our programs are by the Baha'i faith. Basically, we just poach all the best ideas of, you know, Baha'i education and, mm -hmm. um, and community building work and, uh, and just use it in our program. And, um, as Catherine, uh, and you're, you're stepping down this year from being an in-country program director to being an executive director, mm -hmm. kind of based mostly in the States. Uh, so then it will be a program completely run and, uh, mm -hmm. uh by Haitians, which is a, a really exciting new yeah. chapter in our, in our yeah. development. It's nice seeing them grow and, and take ownership of this yes. because it is theirs. It is. It's theirs. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much and good night.